Warning, the following program features content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Greetings, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 25 of the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Glad to be back with you in the basement for another week of shenanigans across the world wide web. What a whirlwind week it has been, so I want to dive right in and get down to brass tacks. Last week, a Bo Cephas Buddies episode with Corey Samuels and Casey Carr. I think it went over quite well. A lot of people enjoyed it. Uh, Corey, of course, recently crowned Kia Cuck's hottest dad, and shortly thereafter, something else magical happened that we kind of touched on uh, last week. Casey got a new tattoo. And the tattoo, of course, was of the CNH Sugar logo. If you don't know what it is, you're a, you have Google. You know it's it's the it's the oval thing. It's got CNH written inside of it, right? You know you know what it is. Like I said, you have Google. You're on the internet. Look it up. If you don't know what it is, so Casey gets the logo tattooed on his arm. I put it on the CNH Facebook page and on their Twitter as well. And I ask, hey, you know, uh, can Casey and his family get a, a year's worth of free sugar products for tattooing your logo on his skin? And they obliged. And man, the train has kept on a rolling ever since. Now, we thought this would, you know, kind of like peter out in 24, 48 hours, a couple days, you know, at most. Like, that's how long we thought we could milk this. Well, it turns out that's not the case. I wrote a press release about Casey getting the tattoo and CNH taking notice and offering to give him a year's worth of free sugar supplies, right? I, I did it kind of, you know, smart ass, kind of funny type thing. Well, I decided I was going to send it to Kia Cook's newspaper, the Daily Gate City. And I said in the email, you know, this, this guy's a local guy. You might find this interesting, kind of a human interest piece that he's, you know, got this tattoo and he's going to get free sugar for doing so. <laughs> kind of just, you know, the more you say it, the more crazy it sounds, but it's still, I think it's very cool. So I said, in case you want to run it, you can run it. There's some photos attached that you can use as well. Well, it turns out just uh, yesterday, I think it was Thursday. It was in the Thursday edition of the uh, Daily Gate City. Or no, maybe it was Wednesday. I don't know when it was. Either way, the Daily Gate City took the story and ran with it. It's in the paper. It's on like the second page. Verbatim. I didn't get any uh, any credit for it, but uh, I can now consider myself a published freelance journalist. I don't need the credit. A lot of people are like, why didn't you get credited? Why aren't you mad about not getting credited? Because I'm just here to tell the stories, the good stories, the feel-good stuff, the lighthearted fluff. That's what I want to do. And I don't need credit for doing that. I just want to make people happy. So yeah, the Daily Gate City ran the story, ran the press release, it included the picture and everything. And apparently, we are not done with media coverage of the Casey Carr CNH Summer Sugar Fest of 2017. So we've got the Daily Gate City who covered it, obviously, because it's in Keokuk and that's where Casey lives and everything. So that kind of makes sense, right? So I decided I was going to send this press release out to some more area media outlets. And at least one of them is moving forward with the story. And I'm not going to tell you how, because that's that's kind of something for Casey to do. But I will say, keep an eye on the Facebook page, because there's some cool things that are set to happen uh, this week as you're hearing the podcast. So very excited. Super cool. And like I said, we're going to keep this train rolling as far as we can. But of course, with anything strange or crazy on the Internet, you're going to have your natural detractors who think it's the dumbest thing they've ever seen. But I got to tell you, being being a part of this merely from like an associated connection loosely, like a third party almost, it's been an absolute joy. It's been a blast and it, it, it feels like being a celebrity. It feels like being part of something big, even if it's, you know, somewhat ridiculous. Maybe the celebrity part comes from the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm now a uh, published freelance journalist, but, you know, it is what it is. 
look, at the end of the day, you can complain about it being ridiculous all you want, but I'd much rather read about a guy getting a brand logo tattooed on his skin and getting some recognition from the company than the latest, um, uh, who's, who's somebody that's always in the news, uh, Danny Bonaducci controversy, you know, I'll take that any day. Like I said, at any rate, we're just going to keep rolling down the, the sugary tracks of the cane train, wherever they may take us. And speaking of sweet, Gold Peak Tea continues to tantalize me by responding to the tweets I tag him in. There's method to the madness. I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm trying super hard just to get their clearance to include their commercials in the show. Obviously, I did it last week, but, you know, it'd be nice to have some official approval to include them, you know. Make sure I'm doing everything by the book. Or at least with permission. I'm not even asking them for a financial sponsorship. I'm just, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to help them move product at the end of the day. I think it's working, though, because Mark James of the Poop Culture Podcast recently sent me a photo of some Gold Peak Diet Tea. And Scotty Vaughn of Staggered Fame and neighbor to my bass player, Don Van Dyke, shot out a Facebook uh, post yesterday of himself enjoying some Gold Peak as well. So I think, I think my little experiment is, is working here. I endorse Gold Peak Tea. People who listen to the podcast go out and buy it. I'm helping spike sales in Gold Peak Tea, so the least they could do is kick me back some sponsorship, right? Who knows? Only time will tell. But I got to tell you, folks, things are going really well in the world of Bocevas over the past couple of weeks, and I'm feeling pretty high on the hog. It feels good to feel good. You know what I'm saying? That that That's kind of contradictory, but it feels good to feel good, doesn't it? Anyway, I'm feeling pretty good about the chat I had with my guest today. I ranked this conversation, and you may have seen it on the Facebook page as well, uh, right up there with my chat with with Sonny Curtis, who I think might be probably one of my favorite conversations that I've had thus far in this whole uh, podcast foray. You want to talk about a really cool concept. My guest today found a journal at the farm he lived on growing up from a young man who previously lived at the same farm, and he turned it into a record called Sangamon Songs. Now he's got a record coming out produced by and featuring the playing of John Stewart of Wilco. I am a huge Wilco fan, so the minute I found out about this, I was like, I gotta talk to this guy. It's It needs to happen. Uh, and the craziest thing is he lives about an hour and a half away from me, which is even cooler. So, this is all very neat stuff to me, and coming up next, stick around for my chat with Springfield, Illinois musician and legend Tom Irwin, coming up next. You're listening to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Mom, Grandma, leaving on a morning train. Hi there, this is Dr. Richard Foliage inviting you to check out The Rock Show, a brand new podcast dedicated to the study of rocks. This monthly program takes you for a wild ride through the realm of rocks. The debut episode of The Rock Show takes us to Star Rock State Park near Oglesby, Illinois for a fascinating geode hunt. You don't want to miss all the action-packed excitement. Check out The Rock Show, America's newest and soon-to-be-most-trusted podcast resource for all things that rock. We now return to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. After loving me. My guest today is an Illinois-based musician and songwriter who has a new record titled All That Love arriving this fall. The record was produced by and features playing from another Illinois-based musical heavyweight, John Stewart, bass player for Wilco. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program today, Mr. Tom Irwin. Good to have you here. 
Jay, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was an interesting path that uh, brought us together. You reached out about uh, writing an article for the Illinois Times about my band for a show that we were playing yeah. in the in the Springfield area. And then uh, upon doing my research, I, I felt it more appropriate for me to be talking about you. you. You're a busy man in this area. And I read that you're churning out around, you know, 200 shows a year. How do you keep up with all that? Well, that's... Um I guess if you think about it, as uh, well, you know, you keep busy and work. I don't. This is my this is my job, so there's a difference. I don't have to uh, juggle a full time position. So between that and yeah, I write these things for the Illinois Times. I always look at that as well. I'd usually do that on Monday and Tuesday, which are normally kind of off gig days, you know. So um, that works out pretty well to do that. Uh, so yeah, I don't know how do all any of us do it. You know, sometimes you look back <laughs> and you go, "How'd I do that?" <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's for you, it's not newfound success either. I mean, you've won accolades in the area for for several years, dating back to 1994 when you and your band were voted best folk band by the readers of the best Illinois Times. Band. Yeah, it doesn't yes. stop there. You won the same award. Uh, yeah, won the same award again. In 1999, and then Best Male Vocalist in 2001, Male Musician 2002, Solo Musician 2004, and Best Musician in the Best of Springfield in 2007. And then in 2013, you also received the Downtown Music Legend Award in Springfield. Yeah. You're, you're the only one to be given that award, right? Yes, yes. That was from mostly from playing. Uh, uh, I did the, the Brew House was a popular bar that opened in. 1994 in Springfield, back when Owen heard of craft beers, they had around 300 craft beers, and it was just like the coolest joint in town. And one of my best friends um, uh, started it back. He was he was younger than me in in high school, but um, we were a good friend, so we started playing there on Sundays. So we played there for a little over 20 years. So that was kind of almost every Sunday. I like to say we were booked every Sunday. So uh, in between traveling and playing. So anyway, yeah, the downtown music, a legend award. I'm not sure what, <laughs> you know, it's like, you don't want to be called a legend until you're like, you know, <laughs> gone, dead and gone or something that makes me nervous. But that's but, gotta uh, be, that's gotta be very humbling though. Right? Yes. Yes, it certainly was. And I, it was a complete surprise. That was at the downtown Springfield incorporated, uh, the DSI, they call it. They put on the, the big, festivals downtown and the farmer's mm -hmm. market. So I, I was brought there as uh, through my work at the Illinois Times as a columnist there, and then they surprised me. So that was quite uh, humbling. So all I could say was tomorrow, though, my prices doubled, but of course they didn't. But that was, you know. <laughs> it's in your writer now as part of the contract. Exactly. You're a big deal. You, you deserve, you deserve yeah, an right. extra case of water in the dressing room. <laughs> right. It's boiled peanuts as well. Yes. <laughs> I have to mention this because I, I thought this was really cool, too. In 2010, you, you got um, your master's degree from the University of Illinois in liberal yes. and integrative yes. studies. And for your thesis right. project, you made a record. It's called Sangamon Songs. Tell me about that record. It's like um, it's like a folk storybook, but but are all these songs centered around historical events or accounts of Sangamon County? Uh, actually, just about one one person. It was a I have a fascinating story. Uh, we live just uh, I live uh, well, and our family farm is right out Jefferson Street. So it's you know it's about seven miles out west of town, or as my father used to say, we're seven miles west of town and getting closer all the time as the city gets closer <laughs> to us basically yeah. but but when my great-grandfather thomas duncan my namesake bought this farm in 1894 from a family called the ludlums and there was a 17 year old boy who started writing a journal in august of 1893 believe it or not he went to downtown springfield and bought this journal and he wrote in it well it sat around after the my grandfather great-grandfather bought this farm this kid left the journal there and it has sat in this old cabinet for years. And it, it sounds like a crazy story, but 
I kind of found it a hundred and something years later. I mean, people would look through it, but no one had read it. I started reading through it and like, well, this is fascinating. I mean, he wrote every day wow. something that happened. And of course that was, you know, back then shucking corn was just a normal every day to us. It's like, what's shucking corn? You know, <laughs> and who does that? He went, exactly. And of course now it's on urban dictionary. You don't even want to know what it means. <laughs> uh, it doesn't mean what it meant back then. I'll tell you that, but they were, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth to it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I wrote a song about it, and I was uh, I was doing I was originally hadn't decided to take this journal because it's in pretty good condition and just maybe do more academic thing like you're speaking of for my master's um, piece to mm-hmm. to do that. And I'd written a psalm called Corner Shuck or Shuck and Corn, which uh, Soup from uh, uh, Granda from the Ozark Mountain Daredevils recorded last year for his album, which is a very nice thing. But yeah. Um, and then I written and I and I just showed it to my uh, history person who was going to be my guidance counselor, or whatever on the masters. And I said, well, I really want to do this with the journal. You know, we'll we'll, we'll have a have a glossary in the back, and we'll talk about what linseed oil is because who knows what that is anymore, <laughs> and things like that from the farm, you know, and uh, and discuss all this stuff. And then I floated a song, and she's like, why don't you just write all this in songs? So it's all based on um, entries that Harry Glenn Ludlum, the boy, had written, and I would I, I took as many lines as I could, for example, he went to the world's fair known as the Columbian uh, exposition up in Chicago, 1893 is, it's a really, it was where the Ferris wheel was first put in, right? The very first Ferris wheel they ever had. Um, and, and I come to, and he wrote a little thing in his journal. He was so excited to go. Of course, he's 17 years, just turned 17, went to, this is the biggest deal in America at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he got to go to this fair and he drew a little picture of the Ferris wheel and he wrote hurrah for the world's fair. So then I went back and did some research about the fair and found out all these neat things that were going, I mean, just a crazy time. And then wrote a song called hurrah for the world's fair. So it was a very collaborative effort between me and this, uh, 17 year old kid who died in 1964, I guess at age, uh, gosh, I don't know how old he was by an 80 something, I think. So it was a, it was a very interesting and rewarding album to do. Man, that, that is, that is so cool. What was, what was one of the most like interesting things that you found in that journal? What, what did you find most oh. fascinating about going back through that, that whole document? Well, I would say two things. One of them, the most fascinating thing was if you go, if you guys are familiar with the territory here, you go out Springfield, you go out Jefferson, you pass our farm right before you get to that junction, it goes to Petersburg or you go on the Pleasant Plains into Beardstown. There's a little Creek called Prairie Creek. And and there, you know, that's where you cross over the creek back then. There was just a small bridge, possibly even a ford. But he wrote in his journal one night all this stuff about it, you know, what he did that day, which, of course, obviously shuck corn and Uncle Ed went to the town in the buggy. And then he writes the last paragraph, there are a lot of gypsies camped down by the creek tonight. Their dogs got into our sheep and I would have shot it, but my rifle missed fire. Like, you know, first of all, what? <laughs> you know. <laughs> But my grandma told me stories about gypsies, or they called them gypsies. Anyway, I did a lot of research on it. I thought that was just like, I mean, you think about it to this day and age, you know, if you had people that would come in, in groups of 30 or 40 or something and just camp in an area for two or three days and then move on, it would just you know, be unheard of. But that was the most fascinating part. And the funniest one, quickly, was, was he went to a barn dance on uh, the next farm north of ours over on the next hill. It was the Tuxhorn Farm. And he writes in his journal, uh, Ben and I, who lived across the road from him, across the Bridgetown Road there, he said, Ben and I are going to the barn dance. Then the next day he writes, what Ben and I did last night, we will never tell. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's what I said. You know, I was like, wait a minute, you just, this is your journal, and you didn't, you won't tell what you did. So I'm not sure. So I wrote a song called "What Went On Last Night." Just about it. I didn't really. I just let the secret be, you know. But I don't know what they did. Smoked corn silks or something. What are you doing? Maybe he knew 18, that down 19. the road that that Tom Irwin would be, you know, reading that journal. He didn't want to give all his <laughs> secrets right. away. <laughs> That'd be good. That's what we tell people. Don't you know? Burn your journals. Somebody will find it someday. That's such a fascinating story. That uh, that's pretty cool. So I'm assuming you ace the uh, the masters project then yes that worked out well and then we i only had like five songs then so i had to complete the project i did my first kickstarter project then and i got some money to raise enough money to to put the album out on on cd and we promoted it a little bit to folk radio so it was really fun we did actually i have a show i just love to go do the beginning to the end because it just follows this pattern you know this from his very first entry, he just gloriously writes about how the how the dust lies thick across the road. It's this beautiful, eloquent piece. Then by the end, he's practically crying because he has to leave this area. You're never to come back. And he says, "I will follow in the footsteps of my maker." I mean, it was just it was just so eloquently written, and I guess paced to be a good word. It just paced itself like a novel or a story where it started out real happy, and then you know, crescendoed in this great middle, and then his grandma dies, and all of a sudden they sell the farm and they're gone. They never come back. So. It's fun to do like a, I did some shows, just like a whole, uh, you know, like little plays based around it too. So yeah, it's been a it was a fascinating part of my life for a while there. Working yeah, on that, absolutely. How, how, I mean, I I could only imagine you know having somebody you find your journal and write about your life. So yeah. that's fair. You know, it, it would be very cool to hear you know what he would have to say about how you um you know kind of kind of turned his his journal into a biography of his life. You know. Yeah, and it was interesting, of course, because I grew up in the same farm he did. You know, I, I was. Uh, uh, they, we had the, you know, the same barn and the same outhouse, the same, I mean, all the paths were still there. I could look out the same window where he looked out and saw the gypsies. So that made it a, a little bit of a, uh, you know, a heartbeater when you were, when I was actually thinking about it and doing yeah. it. So, Man, that's so awesome. The, uh, <laughs> tell me about, tell me about your start, um, playing music. What, what is your fondest memory of those early days and how did you uh, get into the whole, the whole musical scene? Yeah, well, we used to go over to, um, well, Yatesville, which is out the little town outside of uh, Prentice and Ashland there, and go. my dad really liked to square dance, I don't think my mom did so much, but she did go along, and so we used to drive to, the, you know, drive to these square dances, and of course, uh, so I heard a lot of, I don't know if it was terrifically good music, the band, I'm, you know, or <laughs> I don't know, at, at this point, you know, you think like, well, I remember the, the guy had an organ in, a, in the square dance band, and <laughs> Uh, they weren't terrifically good in my memory, but at that time I didn't know anything different. So I used to grew up as a lot of like old country music, Buck Owens and dad really liked Hank Thompson and stuff like that. We had a Johnny Cash eight track that I don't think I, I can't ever think of it ever coming out of the eight track machine that was in our old van. You know, I think there's there for like 12 years or something, probably just <laughs> over and over. And then I got, of course, kind of grew out of that into, uh, first started playing music. Actually, I was about. 12 and 13 played bass with my best friend wanted to play guitar so we started learning old uh grand funk and you know rolling stones and yeah. kind of got into some deep purple stuff around then so in, by the 76 i was pretty much into a, a band where we were covering your eye heap writing a lot of original songs uh doing some roy gallagher some the old blues things like that so 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 by 76 we were called had a band called zeus and so we were playing all around the area, uh, doing some really, you know, kind of particularly contemporary, I guess, at that time, some blues-based rock, I guess you would call it. Yeah. But I remember the first memory, you know, I would say, probably playing in the 
down in our basement, when Dooley was his name, Tom Dooley, Tom Woolsey. Tom Dooley was my best friend, still is actually to this day. We were we still play together pretty frequently. We were about 12 then playing in the basement. I'm sure the amps got too loud because my grandma lived upstairs <laughs> and she would take her, <laughs> take her cane, you know, and beat on the floor when we would get too loud <laughs> songs. Uh, probably still, that's probably still carry that with me somewhere. <laughs> somehow. Well, you've got, uh, you've got quite a list of folks that you've shared the stage with over the years as well. You've got Willie Nelson, Ryan Adams, Billy Bob yeah. Thornton, many others. You met Willie and, uh, Willie had some, some interesting compliments for you. Well, tell me those yeah. compliments and, uh, tell the listeners what Willie Nelson had to say to you. Sure. I, I yes. I, kind of how I met him quickly was his kids would, grew up out of Maui and my sister was a school teacher out there at Montessori. So she ended up teaching his kids and Micah who's out playing now. I, I kind of talked to him when he was a little, but anyways, through that, we got a connection to open up out at the only state fairgrounds, which was fantastic, you know, yeah. some 4,000 people. Wow. And then I was supposed to meet Willie afterwards, but it just kind of got messed up cause it was raining. And so I thought, well, I'll go wait nine. I didn't want to be the guy to go like, Hey man, so I just waited in line with everybody else, and there's Willie. You know, I'm standing behind it by the bus with some guy holding an umbrella, and all the rest of us stand in line. And I finally got up to him, and I had this old Hank Williams shirt on, and uh, and then he looked up and he looked saw my shirt first because he was just signing things. And I had some T-shirts we'd made that said "Paul Rowan and I hired hands with Willie Nelson" in small letters, which he thought was hilarious. But then he said. <laughs> I, he said, I like your shirt, man. Oh, and then he looked up and he said, oh, I like your music too. And he kind of realized that uh, that there was the guy playing for us. So that, wow. that was my Willie comment. <laughs> so did you ever... The music second. <laughs> did, you, um, did you ever encounter any of the others? Like, I'd pee my pants to meet Ryan Adams. He's a huge influence well, to me. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, I... I well, we met Ryan Adams, and he played at the Alley here in Springfield, and he was just kind of breaking out of Whiskey Town, mm-hmm. and the first album was out, so he came down here and played. It was a really mesmerizing concert, in a sense, I, I opened up for him, and we just played my regular stuff, and he just, it was really odd, he just came out, I and mean, this was before he was kind of like the household name, obviously, is now, and he just brought a chair out, sat in the chair, had a bunch of papers, he was trying new songs out, laid them out in front of him, and the whole bar... I've never ever experienced this before. It just was silent and people went up without being told or beckoned or any kind of thing right in front of the stage and sat down cross-legged in front of him. And no one even spoke for it. It was 43 minutes exactly because I knew the promoter and he was like, the son of a girl, he played 43 minutes and that was it. But (laughs) people weren't even, were scared to even ask for a beer. I mean, it was just, a pin drop kind of silence and he played i don't remember any of the songs i don't know if anybody does but he didn't play anything from whiskey town he played maybe some of the new stuff that we didn't recognize Mm -hmm. then he got done walked over to the to the golf machines those golden pro golf machines and started playing golf and and then a little (laughs) bit later he started asking people we could find illegal drugs that i won't mention too much and (laughs) basically that was our experience with ryan adams he would never want to go back up on stage it was 43 minutes he got his 500 bucks and then we never saw him again it's very rare, you know, in, in any music scene, really, anymore, that, that people will just, you know, do that. Like you said, it's very mesmerizing that people would just, you know, go down oh, and sit man. cross-legged in front of a stage and you could hear a pin drop. That, I, I, that's one of my big, you know, pet peeves is that people don't, you know, you're relegated to background music. And even like some of the big touring acts yeah. that I've seen, people, um, you know, they'll go for like an acapella song or something like that. And people are still, you know, just flapping their gums. It's, yeah, it's just, it blows my mind. Yeah, the people, especially the prices you pay to go see things. I, yeah. I, I actually 
have been to some more concerts than last year than I really have. I got to see Nick Lowe live, which I was going to tell you, I, I, for some reason, I've had Cruel to be kind stuck in my mind for the last three hours, <laughs> which is a, kind of an odd song to have in my head. And then, and then people were, of course, quiet. It's, I guess, the respectful fact that he played solo and then Chris Christopherson, who really just, I mean, people were crying, including me. I just had tears just coming out of my eyes listening to the man. And But then we went and saw Wilco and, and to meet with up with John after that. And I, people just kind of talked to me. We had people right in front of me that brought their little probably six-year-old girl who sat on the phone and they played. I don't know. I never quite understood that. You know, I was trying to actually watch the concert. And yeah. It was more like a, I don't know, like a TV experience. You get that feeling like people are so used to, I don't know, watching TV where you kind of talk and do whatever you want. You don't really have to pay attention to anybody around you because there isn't anyone. Yeah. Uh, or I don't know why that is, but it seems it's like just, they, I, I see more of that than you used to. Yeah, it's just very bizarre. But uh, I want to go back to, to talking about uh, yes. uh, Wilco and John. You you yeah. opened up for John's one of John's side projects in, was it Bloomington, right? Right, at the castle in Bloomington, yes. And and I understand, there was was there a mishap in the opening band thing? Because you said that you showed up and there was another band that was already set. So what was the story with that? What How did that shake he, out? Yeah, that's funny. It was uh, uh, John's band, Candy Gold, and uh, uh, Bunny Carlos was the drummer. So this was like their little side project with a couple of guitar players from, from Chicago, Nick Tremulous. And so they were playing there, and our drummer just like called up the castle and was trying to get us some some gigs and get out. This was a 2011. So I was right in the midst of doing all the Sangamon song stuff. So it was kind of mm-hmm. a odd jump for me to do that. But we went up there, booked a gig, thought it was great. Got up there to the show. And there's a group called magic box, which is, um, Oh, Edward, uh, David Anderson was in that band. Then they had the backyard tire fire was the original band before that. They were a pretty popular group up around the Bloomington, Illinois area back then, but they had already set up. So they had all their gear and then Candy Gold was behind them, and it was a little bit of like, well, you know, we're supposed to play it. Well, we're supposed to play it. One of the owners booked this, and the other owner booked them, and <laughs> there was a bit of a standoff. And I thought, well, we, we don't really have that much gear. I play acoustic guitar. We had a small drum kit. I was like, well, we'll just set up in front of you and play. And that was fine, which turned out to be fantastic because John happened to be walking in while we were finishing up our last five songs of our set. Otherwise, you know, he would never would have heard us, but uh, that was the lucky circumstance that allowed him to hear us. And then he ended up talking to our drummer afterwards and and really was curious about the song because he really liked uh, the songs that I played and the way we would perform them with the band. He was a big Doug Somm fan. Those guys were. And so somehow that connection he liked. So that was really... Yeah, just how it happened. We just had to be playing first because the other guys wanted to play second, so we <laughs> didn't have to armor us for anything. But it was like, all right, well, we'll play first then. So yeah. So you guys obviously, yep. I mean, you you and John hit it off, and and it seems like he's yeah. you know very genuinely in your corner and a big advocate of you and and what you do. So what was it like when he said that he wanted to produce your record? Well, yeah, a bit breathtaking for me, you know. I, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and for one thing, I had to do. I really, I mean, I like the early Uncle. Tupelo stuff, and I liked oh, yeah. the, the Wilco, but some of the later Wilco, even though Jay Bennett, you know, had done the uh, the middle period stuff, and he had died right. recently, and all that story. I really, honestly, uh, wasn't as familiar with the Wilco stuff as I should be, so I had to go ask a friend to, to <laughs> you know, kind of make me a crash course in Wilco at the time. Right. So I really wanted to catch up, but then I, you know, then I found out through it, and uh, that John did a lot of. I think, from what I can tell, from what he did with with our record. He did a lot of the arranging. You can kind of tell certain, especially on the bass, where the bass can play thirds or sevenths or, you know, different notes inside chords that will really color a song. 
and he did a lot of that and i can hear that in the wilco stuff and then of course jeff writes all the music for wilco basically mm-hmm. uh, except for one song i think john got on there what first album so um i think it was kind of not that i put that quite but john liked the kind of music we were doing because it was real kind of earthy and rootsy and wilco had kind of gone off toward you know some little more experimental stuff i think and maybe what John was comfortable with. I mean, he was good at it. He liked it, I think. But he really, I think that was part of what he liked about what we were doing. That it, it seemed, I don't know quite if I'm trying to kind of step gently here. I'm not saying it will go. <laughs> he doesn't like it or anything, but it was different. You know, they are, yeah. they, our, our songs are more sing-along, more kind of pop, more, you know, you can play them around a campfire, that right. kind of stuff, I think. And I think he really enjoyed that. Uh, yes, and we became, we just kind of hit it off on, on so many we love the old christopherson the 70s uh country records you know that were just real sound and real yeah. songs that you could play and the instruments were recorded to sound good just like they were without trying to turn them into something else and put some kind of weird noises on or anything we really bonded <laughs> on that so it seems kind of bizarre to say that then it's like you yeah. know i just tried to get the instruments to sound like they're supposed to there's a <laughs> you sound like people are playing them <laughs> yeah exactly what a crazy concept <laughs> well you mentioned that you know that there's kind of an earthy element to to your music and i think that's very evident you know when i first heard um welcome to loneliness it was kind of funny because i thought two things this mm-hmm. was before i knew that that john was you know playing on the album and and had produced the album mm-hmm. i thought man this this has a real Wilco vibe. And I was like, you know, that oh, that neat. sounds like a very Wilco baseline. And so, you know, <laughs> start digging <laughs> around. Either, and man. then I find that John, yeah. you know, played and produced on the record. And I was like, that is so very cool. And, and he, um, he brought in some very, very respected musicians for your record as well. Um, so who, who all played on this record? Yeah. And these were guys that, uh, John has a band called autumn defense with him at the end, Pat Sansone is also a member of Wilco kind yeah. of did. And so he brought in these guys that he'd worked with there. The drummer of course was one of the Greg, uh, uh, they just call him G Wiz Cause we don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's Wiz or Zinsky or something <laughs> like that, but he's wonderful, but he plays with Norma, Nora Jones, uh, maybe in the last five, well, probably longer than that now, uh, six, maybe the last 10 years he's been with Nora Jones and, and he was just wonderful. He's a good friend of John's and G just asked him, it's like John said, when he heard some of his songs, he kind of had them how he wanted them to sound. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to bring in people that he'd work with. And John Piracello ended up playing uh, pedal steel and 12 string. He owns the uh, Lakeland guitars and Hanson guitars up in Chicago. And that's kind of how he knows those guys. He plays with them. And they were just, and he, you know, he brought in his own guitars that he'd made. And he was just a real, I'm just, all of them were just real gentle souls that just, really enjoyed the music and the songs and you could just see it. We, and then, uh, my wife came and played Teresa O'Hare played flute on the one song, which was really fabulous to get her in there. And then the other kind of wild card that we didn't know was, uh, Scott Legan. And he's, he's from Morton, Illinois, actually up by Peoria. Uh, but he p- plays an NRBQ now. Now, I mean, it's one of the latest, obviously the, uh, latest version of NRBQ says they've been around since what, like the late sixties or early seventies that they've been around. But, John told me he brought Scott in just because he's kind of a, uh, he played everything. He, he's normally a guitar player. And he kept, John kept saying, I want you to play the piano. He's like, you only play guitar. He's like, no, go play organ. He's like, I'll play <laughs> guitar. And he goes, why don't you play bass? It was really funny. He just kind of, kind of put him on these different instruments and every one of them he was brilliant on. Wow. Um, so anyway, I can't, yeah, I don't know. You know, John just really had a good ear. Then we brought 
uh, our regular band in down here, the Hayburners, uh, Brad Flores. Uh, people might know him from uh, Jacksonville. He's a wonderful guitar player. He used to play in the New Goat Ensemble and those guys. Um, and then Pete Romano, our regular drummer, and uh, Jeff Davidsmeyer, who lives outside of Winchester out there now, and uh, played piano on some songs. So, it, you know, this kind of all came together in a wonderful way. I, I don't, you know, it's one of those things you can't plan it sometimes. It just goes plop, you know. Yeah, yeah. Did the um did the songs change a lot over the course of you know kind of you know writing them or or were they pretty true to form and John just kind of put um maybe a touch that you hadn't thought about on it previously on on certain songs? Yeah, pretty much the last. We didn't really drastically rearrange anything, uh, but it was some interesting things. Like I had an old song. I think I wrote it when I knew three chords. You know, and. <laughs> that's about it you know g a minor c like well, this is good and so he's like well let me do go to the b minor here on the chorus and, and it kind of uplifted things it's like so and the melody didn't change but he colored some things like that which mostly through um chord substitutions mainly uh you know like a next like it add a d minor here instead of the f and this was a certain part just mm-hmm. really brilliant stuff i i didn't uh there was nothing I, I disagreed with when, when he did that kind of thing. And we, and some of them, then we kind of shortened up a little bit cause I'd been playing them live for a long time. So you kind of stretched out the, you know, the middle part could have been a right. 10 minute solo, you know, and some <laughs> at the, but we kind of brought it down to a pop, pop uh, music stature there on Like if she will was an old song that we did that too. So mainly that's kind of what we did. I just sent John 30, 40 songs and he kind of picked out the ones he liked and, 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 and most of them, really weren't any surprises. I mean, some of them were my favorite songs I've done through the years. And then that love forever, which is one of our favorites. It was just, we figured that out the night before the studio. He would just, do you have anything else? And I went, ah. got this one song I'd written for a wedding, but I just never really thought I'd ever do it. Cause there were already three songs. This is a good story about John. There were three songs already with love in the title on the record. <laughs> and I thought, I don't think we need four. And John's like, you can't have too many songs with love in the title. So I thought, all right, we'll go with love forever. We just, we just really learned that the night before in studio. And that was probably the most one that was rearranged because I really didn't have a solid arrangement on anyway, but he was very respectful of where the songs came from. And, um, and you know, also with the singing, I mean, he was just, you know, he just got it. They just got so many of the words and listened to the words and, and really, added if you listen to it i think one of the other the subtle things that john did and you would appreciate this you know being a musician and a kind of a uh an arranger of wilco fan are the are the harmonies where he yeah. he doesn't put a harmony in do you notice that like not just like he didn't sing like a whole chorus like he normally would he'd be like a middle line like in the middle of the verse boom boom, boom. he'd just sing like three or four words and then did you know yeah, yeah they're just kind of like sporadic accents yeah that's a yeah sporadic accents i'm gonna have to use that from now on (laughs) (laughs) you got it i just uh, just a small cut from it that's all i need (laughs) you'll get get text in the mail man (laughs) so you're known you're known for kind of a you know a traditionalist kind of folk influence and and i think that's still um you know evident at the root of this new batch of songs but i i i hear um a lot broader sound in some of them too do you think that's an accurate observation there's there's more textures there's more um you know layers and, and kind of more for i would say for you maybe ex- experimentation uh with the sound is that yes, accurate? i think so in, in some ways and also you know during the like i say back in the 80s i had a, a really offbeat new wave band that was just playing like what we would call anti-music so i love really a lot of the atonal stuff you won't notice it on there but we've always had a call, song called like work and jerk that we do live which is basically uh as someone described it it's like buddy holly meets 
Frank Zappa in a dark corner or something. <laughs> so I'm not opposed to going to, you know, I love actually the experimental stuff and the different things, but sick John added a few, you know, noises and odd things. So I really do enjoy that. I just haven't done much of that in the last 10 years really, or, um, because I really kind of, I think mostly because I played live, I do acoustic guitar and most of my gigs really are solos. And then when we play with the band, you know, we'll rock out pretty hard when we, you know, but it's, I mean, rock out to me is, you know, you know, E minor for while rockabilly kind of stuff. Uh, because I don't, I don't, I don't picking the tempo up just, just a little, little bit. bit, you know, doing a dingy, dingy, dingy. But I like to get weird and do some fun stuff like that's electric things. So I really, I appreciate that. So it wasn't completely alien to you, but, but I understand what you're saying. I, I mean, the last, couple albums i did in the 98 late 90s and early 2000s they were all full band stuff with a lot of electric guitar and piano and things but this is the first one i've done when we actually kind of sat down and really not really had any help uh, that was one thing you know when you're out there it's just amazing when you get somebody other set of ears and eyes on it but yes yeah. I, I totally agree with what you're saying there yeah this has been a stretch for what i've been doing the last uh, several years for sure was there something that was added in the recording of a song that, that you know, when listening back that you were like, man, that, that I would have never thought of that, but that makes perfect sense to put that there or to do this here? Yes, and then the one I was just uh, really thinking of was um, on the Welcome Aloneness. There's a funny little sound in there. Uh, we have the accordion and there's a little bit of organ, so it's really kind of heavy. And for some reason, mm-hmm. John put something in there. We had to ask him what it was. He was kind of like, I don't know. I think it's like some electronic mandolin button or something on some. <laughs> but you can hear it. It sounds like the guy on a, that uh, helped us doing on the promotion, he said, is that like a hammered dulcimer? I was like, no, but it's you can hear it. It kind of got that wavering, that it's Yeah, yeah. I would never have thought of putting that in there, but it somehow kind of adds a little layer of, of, of maybe, I don't know what, modern electronic kind of a, of a sense to this, to a song that basically could have been written, you know, the chord progression is something that's, you know, it's D and G and A and E minor, you know, that's the whole song. It could be an old Irish folk song from mm-hmm. 300 years ago and, and no one would have known the difference. <laughs> so I think that was one thing that kind of surprised me that I never would have, uh, I never would have thought of it. John just kind of tacked on there when he, he took the stuff home and just kind of played with things for a little while and kind of made it sound the yeah. way he wanted certain things to be added to it. Cool. What was your, uh, what was your favorite song on this new record? Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's, I know that's like asking you to pick your favorite child. Right, but right. I got to put you on the spot at some point in this interview. Well, I would have to say all that love. It really is. It's kind of a, it's a slow one and it's kind of sappy in a sense for my taste. It's like, can I, did I write a song called All That Love? Come on, God, help me. You know, I'll be uh, kicked out of the, all the bar. But, but the reason I like it, I guess, is because it really is, um, you know, it's just this universal feeling and I, all the other stuff. I mean, Baby's Britches is fun and it's nice to cuss on a record and all that, you know, all these other songs about <laughs> sadness and how we're going to fix the world and by being mad. But that song just always, every time I sing it, it always kind of brings it back and and honestly it's kind of silly but about two months ago we played a uh, during mother's day an old actually uh, a second cousin of mine who's 82 or something wanted me to come play for their mother-daughter banquet at their elm street christian church which it was not necessarily my kind of venue shall we say <laughs> but we went there and I did a lot of songs and then I did that song, all that love. And, and, you know, here's these people out there and they're kind of tearing up and crying and, 
kind of got a standing ovation when we got done like this is it so i guess that's kind of why i love the song the most out of the other ones because it seems to reach beyond maybe what we would call our our little market that we have you know the americana world or the folk world it seems to have uh legs that stretch beyond all that so in that sense i'd have to say that's my favorite yeah yeah, absolutely. You uh, you mentioned the church not necessarily being your venue of choice, but uh, what, what's the uh, what's the the music scene like in Springfield? What do you what do you think of it? Well, it's you know, gosh, uh, been here a long time and doing it. It, it kind of obviously fluctuates and through the years slowly. I mean, last night I just went to see a band called Food and Money. Uh, they were really big in 1982 in Springfield, but we they came back and got together and. Uh, and just kind of tore down the house out the curve. So, uh, you know, Springfield just got, it's different because it doesn't have that, uh, uh, college town thing where things move a lot. So people that have been here usually stay here. Mm-hmm. So you, I mean, they kind of like, and I guess I'd be a good example. I know other guys have done it too. I've, I've, I've spent my whole career kind of playing music around Springfield. So I've gone from heavy metal in the seventies to new wavies kind of in the eighties into some of the folk and more, uh, earthy kind of stuff through that to kind of back down. So I don't know, uh, Springfield, at least for me, it has been a place where it allows me to, to uh, kind of really be myself. And I, I've spent a career here, you know, uh, changing music and yeah. doing original songs and having people come up. And now I have people come up and go, my dad told me, yeah, I should come out and see you, you know, because <laughs> they used to, dad used to come out and see, you know, whatever kind of things, which is kind of silly at first. You realize, man, that's really pretty cool. You know, to be have that generational uh, ability to, to last through all the stuff. So I, you know, so the, the venues change and they back and forth and someone closes and something else opens up. And, uh, but overall, you know, there, there's, it's a good group here. Uh, it does, it does tend to tend to be kind of self-contained. I've heard people that try and come play Springfield. You might've had that experience too. Like, you know, you ain't from around here or something. Uh, <laughs> you walk into the saloon with the wrong hat on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So th- there are several bands, of course, but just bands break up and they form another band. So there is a bit of a, a uh, you know, relationships uh, that they kind of stay in Springfield. And a lot of bands don't seem to travel outside of Springfield, which is what I'm have done some while before, but I've never really done either. I get to talk to guys like, I think it was Robbie folks that like, you know, he lives in Chicago, but he's like, how come you don't travel more? It's like, I don't know, Robbie, I got like four or five nights a week playing around here and, and I do really well. Yeah. And he's like, shit, he goes, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't reach out <laughs> to the a national level, uh, that if you don't do that, which I've discovered, you know, after all these years of playing it now, I talk to these media guys and they're like, well, what have you been doing for 30 years? Like, hey, playing around here uh, <laughs> you know it's you know what i'm saying well it's, it's you know it's one of those things that you know if, if it ain't broke don't fix it i think so i think that it is i believe that too because sometimes if it's you know well if you push something then you maybe find other occasions otherwise if you push it then it's uh disappointment or you're trying to get something else that maybe right you, you know is not ready for you I don't, I, that's kind of how i feel about this now honestly my kids are are grown and in college and they're all kind of doing their own thing. And I've got this beautiful new, I mean, really, I feel like I'm kind of ready to go out. I got a tour going out to New York city in August and, and in September we kind of, you know, get let the single, the album comes out nationally for the very first time I've ever really released anything on any national level with uh, promotion and stuff. So I guess the time is when the time is, you know, <laughs> it's time, time for you to spread your wings. 
Yeah, that's right. Before I get <laughs> it's, 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 it's land in the wheelchair right the wheelchair. <laughs> it'll keep you young. Staying on the road will keep yeah, you young. You know, I think so, yeah. The album comes out in September, right? Yes. And how can how can folks get a hold of it? Uh, by that time, it'll be just about anywhere. We're, uh, we've got a distribution company out of out of Cleveland that'll help us. So it'll be on all the iTunes and Amazon. And uh, right now, I've, there are some CD copies over in Jacksonville at the record store over there now. And Recycle Records has a few. So we're selling some CDs locally right now. The album, I'm probably excited about that to finally have some vinyl. Uh, yeah. Back on the vinyl craze, that will be here probably the end of August or first of September, depending on their schedule. So, and of course we'll have lots of shows uh, around by that time through the fall. I'm playing some places in, uh, in Carlinville and Jacksonville in uh, September, along with the usual spots around here. So, and Tom Irwin music.com. We can use that in the Facebook. Of course, we all know that's like, uh, that's our way of communicating so much these days and it really works well it's pretty fabulous everybody and their literal dog has facebook <laughs> it's like now i remember i feel like the old guy like i remember we used to have horses these tractors are great you know it's like i used to write postcards out and send everybody now you just like click to a thousand people you can reach at once so yep and uh, folks can actually see you. You've established essentially what is, uh, in essence, a residency at a local venue there in Springfield called uh, George Ranks, right? George, so people yeah. can catch you there. Is it? It's every Friday, right? Every Friday, yeah. I do like seven to ten there. I, every once, I mean, once or twice a month. Or if I'm gone traveling, I'll someone else will do it. But yeah, kind of after the brew house ended, I like having the weekly thing. And uh, yeah, it'll be there usually every Friday, seven to seven to ten or so. They got some good food. I kind of sit up in the corner and play acoustic and. Oh, we can kind of visit and talk to people. Sometimes we bring a band in there, but uh, yeah, that's been going on to, uh, I guess it was, uh, this is into my third year of that. Wow. Well, I'd say you're, uh, you're living the dream of a, a, a local musician for sure. Very, yeah. uh, very much deserves success. And uh, Tom, Thank it's you. been great to talk to you. I, I yeah. really appreciate your time and especially on a holiday weekend and uh, looking forward to getting my copy of All That Love and uh, best of luck to you and uh, keep enjoying it, man, because it, it looks to me like you're having the time of your life still. Well, yeah, I certainly am. And I thank you for uh, the time talking to you too. So it's been, been wonderful and we'll catch up someday and keep it moving. The Mosefist Broadcast. Broadcast. Lying on a sidewalk, pocket full of your hands. The wind is blowing right through your head. Swimming through the past, it feels like quicksand. Just try to remember the last thing you said. Looking for that sacred getaway? where history and the modern era collide. Visit Quincy, Illinois' Northwest Side, where classic, beautiful architecture and the foundation of Mississippi River trade meet the violence and Dodge Caravan porch swings of the 21st century. On Quincy's Northwest Side, you'll find all the makings of an unforgettable getaway. Intricate homes, historic buildings, domestic disputes, armed robberies, Make this vacation the one that creates a lifetime of lasting memories. For more information, visit the Northwest Quincy Convention and Visitors Bureau, located inside the Chestnut Express Market at 1001 North 5th in Quincy. Now, back to the Bocephus Broadcast.
wrapping up episode 25. Thank you for listening, friends. As always, if you're listening on iTunes, take a moment to leave some feedback on the show. And don't forget, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most of this broadcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and of course, through our marvelous host, Podbean.com. Be sure to follow along on social media also at Facebook.com slash Broadcast. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well, also at BoBCraft. And of course, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, uh, hate mail, anything of that nature, be sure to send an email on over to BoCephasBroadcast at gmail.com, and I'll be sure to send you an abridged transcription of last week's Rob Kardashian and Black China drama. Oh, hey, I also, I forgot to mention, we um, we hit 500 likes on our Facebook page this week. Yeah, very impressive. Thank you, kids. Another milestone in the Bocephus broadcast. Super cool. And uh, maybe maybe we'll hit 1,000 by the end of the summer. I don't know. It could happen. Stranger things have. Here's a little challenge for you. If you like the page and you like the show, share the page. And maybe we can get to 1,000 by the end of the summer. Consider the challenge issued. And don't forget to keep checking the page for updates on the Casey Carr Sugar Sonnet of 2017 as that continues to unfold. Exciting times ahead, folks. Like I said earlier, it feels good to feel good, and I am feeling great. And again, big thank you once again to Tom Irwin for joining me today. If you're in Springfield, Illinois, go out and see one of Tom's shows and get yourself a copy of his new album, All That Love. I am looking forward to getting my hands on one as well, and uh, hopefully... Once I've got a weekend off in the near future, I'll make my way down to Springfield and uh, catch one of Tom's shows also. That is going to do it. Otherwise, folks, we'll see you next time for episode 26. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. 